So as a church, we've been walking through the book of 2 Peter. And uh, what we've seen is that this letter as a whole is written that we could have assurance. It's written so that we could know not only that God uh, saved sinners, but that God saved me a sinner. And so we saw in the very first week that the, the, our assurance of those, as those who are God's children is ultimately rooted in God's precious and very great promises. That the fact that we can have joy in our relationship with the Lord comes from the fact that we know that God's promises are trustworthy, that He who promised is faithful. And that is the ultimate ground of our assurance because God has promised um, us that he does save us, that he does take our sins away from us, that he does throw our sins into the bottom of the sea, and we take him at his word because he is a God of truth. So we saw that on the first week. We also saw that the secondary ground for our assurance is the fruit that he does in our life. That As we're growing as Christians, as we're, we're dying to ourselves, as we're putting on Christ, and as we look and live more and more like him, we can see not only that the gospel is true, but that it's true for us. That God is working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so the ultimate ground for our assurance is the precious and very great promises of God. But the secondary ground for our assurance is our, our good works, because our good works point to how good his promises are. We saw in the, the second uh, half of chapter 1 uh, that our salvation, our, the promises that we have of our salvation, are rooted in God's inerrant, inspired word. That God's word was given to us because it was carried along by holy prophets. And we saw last week that that contrasts with the, the teaching of false prophets, that false prophets teach a freedom that leads to slavery, that it, it doesn't give us the, the holy, trustworthy promises of God. It, it tells us a freedom that leads to slavery. It takes grace for advantage. Uh, and yet we, we saw that, on the other hand, submission to the gospel is a slavery that leads to freedom. That if we follow Christ and we put our faith in Christ and we trust in Christ, that there is freedom to be found in being known as his servants and his slaves. And then we get into this week, and this week continues the themes that some of the themes that he started in last week in chapter 2 as we uh, round the corner into chapter 3. And what we'll see as we're going into this week is, is how God continues his, his promises, and not only why that um, is a promise for judgment, but also a promise for salvation. And so look with me in chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Father in heaven, we pray that this morning as we open up your word, that you would fix our minds on the place where righteousness dwells, that our hope would not be disappointed this morning. You would prepare us for that day when we will see your son face to face. Father, if we are feeling afflicted this morning, would you comfort us? If we're feeling comfortable this morning, would you afflict us? God, would you use your word to bind and to break down, to mortify and to give life? that our souls might be ready for the coming of your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I I grew up in a church context which um, loved the Lord and loved the gospel. And um, I remember hearing the gospel at a very young age and accepting the Lord, uh, the gospel at a very young age. But there was a handful of things which were... um, which were off. I mean, that's the only way to describe it. And one of those was the, uh, the coming of Christ. The way that the return of Christ, the blessed hope of Christians was talked about, um, was, um, it was just a little bit off. It was uh, very left behind. Uh, Jerry Jenkins, some of you know that, uh, if, I, if I use that reference. I remember one day waiting up, because um, the, the, this is a true story, because the moon looked kind of red, and I thought that if I fell asleep and Jesus came back in the middle of the night, I would be left behind because I'd be asleep and I wouldn't respond. True story. Um, and to my knowledge, the Lord has not yet returned. I think it's safe to say. Um, at least some of us would not be here if he had. And yet we're still here. And we are still waiting. And I think sometimes as Christians, we, we allow this reality that Christ will return to either burn brightly in our minds and, and make us anxious, or we allow it to recede, and we allow it to, like, we know it's true, we know Christ will return, we know Christ will come back, and yet we kind of allow it to fade into the background and just be something that is true, and, and we are very often not waiting with expectation and with hope for the day that our Lord will return. And so today what I want to do, I want to answer two big questions. One, why is it that we should wait well? Why should we wait well for the Lord to return? Why should we wait well? Why should the return of Christ matter to us? And, and two, how should we wait well? If this is true, if this is why, how does that mean that we should live as Christians? So, so the why and the how this morning, the why and the how. 
If you, if you look here in, in verses 1 and 2, what we see is that Peter is reminding us that the, the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament, that they promise that Christ is going to return. Peter's not making this up. He's not the only one that is saying this, but rather he, he's thinking back of all the prophecies in the Old Testament, such as in Isaiah, which talks about the, the Lord coming to establish his kingdom and that there will be a king who will reign in righteousness and that there will be a day that comes when all the tears will be wiped away. And that, those same promises that God has made were reiterated through the apostles of the New Testament. That those same promises that the, the, the Lord would return are reiterated through the New Testament. And, and it's important to know that because Peter wants to remind us in verse 3 that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing. It's a really emphatic way of saying scoffers will scoff. Scoffers will come with scoffing in the last day following their own sinful desires. And, and this is the same word that is used in the previous chapter to describe those who come with scoffing. This is a, a word that is extremely important. And what he's trying to communicate to us is that in the last day, there are going to be people who twist their theology, twist their understanding of God and of Christ and of the gospel to fit their desires. So rather than fitting their desires to who God says he is in the word, they, they fit who they think God is to who uh, to what they want him to be. Rather than believing in the God who is for who he is, they believe in the God made after their own image. And, and here's what they say in verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So they say, well, he hasn't come back yet. This is throughout time, throughout church history. If you, if you are a student of history, this is one of the objections that people raise to the Christian faith. Well, if he's coming back, why hasn't he come back yet? What is he waiting for? What, why, why isn't he coming? Why isn't he returning? And if, if he hasn't returned, he'll never return, and therefore we can follow after whatever unrestrained desire that we want. And Peter says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water through and through water by the word of God. Peter reminds them of that time back in the very beginning when, when God said, let there be and there was. And all things came into existence by the word of God and the earth emerged out of the sea and the water pulled apart into the sky and into the sea. Peter says that the thing that did that was the Word of God, the same Word of God that, that you and I have in our hands as we're reading this passage this morning. That's what That Word has power, and that power brought the world into existence. And then he says this in verse 6, And by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That the, the same Word, the same Word that, that brought the world into existence brought about the flood in Genesis 6 and 7. And the water covered the face of the earth. The same word that created destroyed. The same word that brought land out of water brought water over land. The, the same word that, that brought all things into existence brought it out of existence. He, he says, that happened, don't you remember? And then he says this, by the same word... The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. 
being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So the same word that brought creation into existence, the same word that flooded the earth, is now storing up the heavens and the earth for fire and the destruction of the ungodly. And this is an important thing for for the Apostle Peter, for the writer. He says that, This idea of judgment shows up in verse 10 again. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and all the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then it says in 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? And then it says again in verse uh, 12, He says, The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Peter promises that there is a day that is coming with judgment. That God is going to judge the wickedness that is on this earth. That God will, at the end of the day, make all things known. That God will, at the, at, at the end of the day, that he will bring those things that were done on it, those things that were hidden in the sands, out into the open. The, the, the same things that, that we are hoping that nobody notices, he says, all the th- works that are done on it are going to be exposed. All the, all the things done in secret, all the things that we do when we think nobody is watching will be exposed. But Peter, Peter it makes me just think of the story of Achan in Joshua 7. How Achan went into Jericho and he took the the things that were not his to take and he hid them in the sand. And those were brought out and God's judgment always exposes us. That's what's going to happen here is that the works that are done on the earth will be exposed in the last day. That that the things that we have done that have uh, been been worthy of God's judgment, uh, those are going to be known. And he's going to expose those things and none of us, there's none of us who get away from it. And what Peter says is the, these, these scoffers who come deliberately overlook this fact. Isn't that a strength, this word deliberately, what does that mean? Why, why, what, why does he say they deliberately overlook the fact that judgment is coming? Well, we live in a world which is very comfortable with the idea of judgment, don't we? Isn't judgment that there's justice that's going to come and, and that there, this, this, the language pervades our, our culture? It's in our movies and in our philosophy. It's in our news. It's in our politics. It's in our church. That, there's, there, that, there, that we live in a world which has no problem talking about justice. It has no problem with things being brought out into the open. What does it mean when he says they deliberately overlook this fact? Of course people believe in justice. What he means when he says they deliberately overlook this fact, I think, is that they think, of course, there's justice coming for somebody else. Of course, there's justice coming for that person over there. Of course, that person over there who did that terrible thing to me, of course, that person's going to be judged. But they ignore the uncomfortable fact that if that person's going to be judged, so are they. See, we all want a God who judges somebody else. We all want a God who judges our neighbor and shows mercy to us. But if God comes 
to judge, if God comes to expose the evil things that are done on the earth, to, to, uh, to resolve it, to conclude it, to, to destroy the, the wickedness of this earth, it doesn't just mean that he does that to everybody else. He does that to us too. That God's judgment is coming not only for, for the things that somebody else does, but also for the things that I do. I would love it if God judged my neighbor. I wouldn't necessarily love it if he judged me. And yet, Peter is very clear that God will come and he will not show partiality. That to the righteous, as we read in Ezekiel, he'll show the reward. And to the wicked and the unrepentant, judgment. Judgment is coming, dear friends. Judgment is coming for all the works that we've done on the earth. The Lord will burn them up with fire. And the question is, why does he wait? Why does he wait? If God's coming to, to judge, if God's going to come and he's going to unveil and he's going to pull the things that we've hidden in the sand out into the open, if God is going to do that, why does he wait? Why doesn't he come and end this? Why doesn't he come and stop this madness? Why doesn't God come soon? What is he waiting for? It says this in verse 8, Do not overlook this fact, one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. That God works on his timeline, his planner, his schedule, not ours. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So why is God waiting? God is waiting till all reach repentance. And the question is, who is all? Who is all? Some people think, that the word all in the end of verse 9 is all of humanity. Every person who's ever lived. Understand that interpretation. Um, He actually tells us who all is, though. He actually tells us who, who the all is that he's talking about. He said, but is patient toward who? Toward you. Who's the all? The all is you. Or as we say where I'm from, y'all. Or in the plural, all y'all. All y'all. He defines that in verse 8 as the beloved. And again in verse 1 as the beloved. Why is God waiting Why hasn't Christ returned? He is waiting till all of his bride comes in. He is waiting till all of his people reach repentance. He is waiting till all of his beloved comes home. He is waiting till every son comes to the end of himself and returns. God is waiting for all of his people to come home and to reach repentance. 
There's plenty of wickedness to judge, but God is not going to let that distract him from his purpose of bringing his people to repentance. God is not going to allow the the wickedness that is done on this earth to thwart his promise to save a people for himself. God is not going to allow the evil things that are done on this earth to stop him from bringing every son and daughter home. The book of Revelation says, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And Ephesians says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And John 6 says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Or as Paul says again in Romans 11, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Christians, why why does God wait? Why doesn't the Son return now? Because there are still people to save There are still people that he shed his own blood for, and he intends to get every drop's worth. He is not in the business of denying the Father what the Father wants. He is not in the business of throwing out those that the Father has given to him. Why does the Son not return? Because there are still people who need to reach repentance. Because the fullness of the Gentiles has not come in because his beloved is not yet complete. There's plenty of works to be judged, and God will be faithful to do that. But he is not going to allow the purpose of the Father to save a people for the Son to be thwarted. He's just not. He's not going to allow the wickedness and the evil deeds that humans have done to stop him from saving a people for himself. And he will bring that to completion. So why should we wait? Why should we wait well? Why should we wait with joy and expectation for him to return? We should wait because he has a people for himself. And we wait well, we wait patiently, we wait with earnestness. We wait well because he is saving a people for himself, and with them we will see him forever. 
Why, why do we wait well? We wait well because the Father's will is that none of his people, none of his beloved, none of his sons and daughters should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And the question is, what does it look like to wait well if this is true? How do we wait well for the Lord? How, how do we, uh, we might say, apply this passage? How do we wait well for what God is doing? Number one, it's complicated. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Remember how he said in verse 3 that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, that they'll twist their understanding of God to fit their own desires rather than fitting their desires to their understanding of God? Don't be a fool. Don't be foolish and scoffing. Don't use your doubts about the coming of the Lord to justify wickedness. Don't be a fool. Number two, God wants you to reach repentance. God wants you to reach repentance. He wants you to repent. He wants you to come to him. If you are here today, it is because God has not yet returned to send his, uh, his son to return and, and to end this, which means that there are still people to come in. Why couldn't it be you? Don't be stubborn. Don't think that's for somebody else, but for all of us. God wants us to reach repentance. As we saw in Ezekiel 18.25, he does, has no pleasure in the destruction of the ungodly. God wants all of us to turn from our ways and to turn to Christ and to find free and perfect and full forgiveness in him. God wants all of us to, to come to know him and to love him and to wait for Christ with, with eager longing and expectation. God wants you to come to repentance. If you don't know what it looks like to do that, to put your faith in Jesus, can I just encourage you to come and talk to me after the service? I would love to walk you through what that looks like. It's as simple as confessing your sins to him and saying, Jesus, I am a sinner. Would you take all of my sin? Saying, and you are a savior. Would you, take, would you save me from it? Would you take all of my sin and give me all of your salvation? All of my unrighteousness and give me all of your righteousness? All of my pride all of my doubt, all of my anger, all of the things that I do in the dark that I'm hoping nobody will see, would you take that all? Would you give me your life? Would you give me forgiveness? I would love to talk with you about what that looks like to put your faith in Jesus. God wants you to reach repentance. Number three, number your days well. Number your days well. Don't forget that Christ will surely return. This is why he, he starts off by saying, this is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, both First and Second Peter, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and the Savior through your apostles. 
Don't allow this reality that Christ will surely return to fade into the background. Don't allow this to to dissipate in your mind and dissolve in your vision. But remember that he will surely return. Or as the psalmist says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That we should live in light of the coming of Christ, not with fear or anxiety, but with joy and hope. Because for those who are in Christ... It is a joyous and blessed return. Number your days well. Number four. Number four. Live a life of holiness and godliness. Live a life of holiness and godliness. This is what he says in verse 11. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That live, live a life that reflects your belief in Jesus. Live a life that reflects your belief in Christ. That look like God and, and live like God. Of course, none of us can be perfect in that. None of us are perfect. This is why we have to continue to remind ourselves of the gospel. Which is why we have to continue to remember that our former sins have been cleansed. But that doesn't remove the obligation to strive for holiness and to lean on the Spirit's power and to walk with our eyes set on Christ. This is what he says in 1 Peter. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter thought that that was important enough to say in both his first letter and in kind of his last will and testament in 2 Peter that he's writing. That we should be a holy people. That God has saved us for holiness. We wait well by being holy. Number five. We wait well by Hastening, that's what it says, 12. Hastening the coming of the day of God. We wait well by hastening the coming of the day of God. What does it mean to hasten the coming of God? What does it mean that you and I participate in the coming of the end? What what does that even look like? I think that that means... That if the reason that Christ has not yet returned is because he is saving a people for himself, then the way that we hasten the coming of the day of God is by being prayerful for the lost and sharing the gospel. In other words, through prayer and evangelism. How do we hasten the day of the of the coming of the day of God? How do we hasten the the coming of Christ? How do we press into this return of our blessed Lord and Savior? Well, we share the gospel. We we, we share the gospel. We, We tell other people about Jesus. The reality is that somebody is going to be the last person to come in before the Lord returns. Somebody's going to be the last person to put their faith in Jesus before the Lord returns. So why not make it the person, the next person that you share the gospel with? 
That's how we hasten the coming of the day of God. We share the gospel and we pray for those who are lost. And we invite them to church and we ask them awkward questions afterwards. That's how we hasten the day of the coming of God. We share the gospel. Number seven, I think. Six, seven? Wow. Six, apparently. We wait well. We wait well by waiting together. We wait well by waiting together. You know how many references there are to the church in this passage? Verse one, the beloved. And in verse 8, the beloved. And in verse 9, you. And then in verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be? That we wait well by waiting together. You do not wait well by waiting alone. I think sometimes what happens is we get discouraged in our life. And so because we're discouraged, we don't want to be around people. All of you introverts say amen. <laughs> and then because we're not around people, we get more discouraged, and it just is kind of in a, a downward spiral. But actually, the book of Hebrews says the, the reason that you and I ought to gather together and come together and walk in community is for encouragement. So Hebrews 10.25 says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The reason that we ought to wait well together is so that we can be encouraged and so we can lift each other up and so that we can pat each other on the back. And when we stumble and fall, because we will stumble and fall, we can help pick each other back up and encourage one another. The reality is when we get discouraged and that discouragement drives us away from the people of God, that discouragement is taking us away from the very means that God has given to get us out of our discouragement. We wait well by waiting together. Number seven. We set our hope on the land where righteousness dwells. We set our hope on the land where righteousness dwells. We set our hope and our eager longing and expectation for the day when the new heavens and the new earth will come. The, the, the longing of the prophets in the Old Testament is for this day. It's the cry of Isaiah when he says, a king will reign in righteousness. That we set our hopes on this blessed day when Christ will return and this madness will be over and this disorder and this evil and this wickedness will be done. And we set our hopes on the day when Christ will return and we will see him and we will know him as we ourselves are known. We set our hopes on the day where John says in Revelation, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen, Lord, come quickly. Father in heaven, we come before you and we plead and pray that your son would return even by the end of this gathering that we would leave from one worship into another. Father, we long for that day when we will see him face to face and we will know him even as we are known. Father, we long to see the blessed hope be fulfilled, to see the dead in Christ be raised first and to be with him forever. We earnestly look forward to the day when the new heavens and the new earth will return. And darkness and crying and gnashing of teeth will be wiped away. And every tear will be dried from our eyes. We long for the day when the former things are passed away, when everything sad will come untrue. We long for that day, Lord. But we know that If it does delay, if your son does tarry, it's because there is work to do here. So would you strengthen our resolve and straighten our backs and lock our knees and put strength in our hands that we might set our eyes to the plow to do the good works that you've given us to do here on this earth. We pray for all this in the name of your Son, our blessed Savior, our blessed hope. Amen.